0: How big is a blue whale? Any guesses? Some adults can grow to over 200 tons. How powerful is a tornado? It can whip up winds over 300 miles an hour. How tall is Mount Everest? Well, Last I checked, it was still over 29,000 feet. We understand categories for impressive stuff like this, don't we? These things are huge in their scope and power. But here's another question. How big is your view of Jesus? How powerful do you take him to be? We come to a passage this morning where Jesus speaks in a way that utterly shocks the religious leaders of his day. He reveals his identity and just how powerful he is. So turn with me to John chapter 5. We've been in John's gospel for the past month looking at the signs Jesus performed and remember, Jesus' signs were not just feats of miraculous power. Uh, they, John teaches us that they were signs. They are meant to point us to, not to themselves, but to the deeper reality of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. John will later say that he's written about these signs so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we may have life in his name. So as we've looked at these signs, we've tried to understand more of who Jesus is and how we can believe in him. We've seen Jesus turn water to wine, We've seen him heal a man's son. We've seen people believe in him, sometimes sincerely, sometimes just because they like what he does. And today we see Jesus perform a sign that makes it even more clear who he is, and it drives even wider the rift between him and those who would reject him. In the coming chapters, Jesus will not only be someone they're concerned with, but someone they actively seek to kill. So two points from this text this morning. First, Jesus the miracle worker, and then Jesus the Sabbath breaker. First, Jesus, the miracle worker. Look with me in verse 1 of chapter 5 of John. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five-roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. So Jesus is back in Jerusalem for a feast. And as he enters, he comes to the pool of Bethesda. Uh, You know, at this time of year, uh, people are opening up their pools enjoying a return of warm weather, but try to remove that entire concept of pool from your head because this pool is totally different. This is no water park. John tells us in verse 3 that this pool is surrounded by sick. He says there lay a multitude of invalids, dozens of blind, lame, paralyzed people. I don't know about you, but if I was entering Jerusalem on that day and knew I was going into that area, I'd make sure to rush past that pool, wouldn't you? That doesn't sound like a pleasant place, but notice again that Jesus is purposeful here. He's going to the place you'd least expect him to go. He's he's not rubbing shoulders with the elite and wealthy. He's going to the weak and outcast. You see here once again that Jesus is simply not the Savior who fits with our expectations. He's not comfortable, predictable. Verse 5, he goes up to one of the invalids by the pool, and we see there that this man has been disabled for 38 years. Thirty-eight years. Thirty-eight years ago today, Jimmy Carter was president. Michael Jordan wouldn't be drafted for another five years. Thirty-eight years is a long time. And especially at this time when the average life expectancy was 40, you can see how this man's whole life has been consumed with suffering can only speculate as to what his condition is. He may have been paralyzed or extremely weak. But we know why he's at the pool. Because in verse 7, we see that he's waiting for the stirring of the waters. So apparently, there was a belief that at certain times, an angel would descend and stir up the pool. And when that happened, whoever got to the water first would be healed. So it seems like this man has been taken back and forth, back and forth to the pool for years, just waiting for his time to come. Verse 6. John says Jesus is already well aware of the man's history, but he asks anyway, do you, want me to be, do you want to be healed? And The man responds, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water's stirred up. This man's completely helpless. Not only is he unable to walk to the pool, but it seems like he doesn't have a friend willing to sit with him and help him if this angel shows up. Yeah, he would like to be healed, but it's like he's given up. Church, just see here the utter weakness and helplessness and aloneness of this guy. He's an invalid, has been for almost four decades, and not only has his physical condition declined, but so has his hope as year after year after year have passed. We see here an utterly helpless individual, a despondent man. I think we can tend to read this and feel pity for him, but but a closer reading shows that he's probably not that much of a fun guy to be around either. Don Carson calls his response to Jesus in verse 7, the crotchety grumblings of an old and not very perceptive man who thinks he's answering a stupid question. Do you want to be healed? This man at the pool in Bethesda is weakest, is the lowest. But look who's standing before him. The strongest, the highest. The one who deserves all praise in the universe has sought this man out among all the invalids at the pool. Friends, see here the amazing juxtaposition. On the one hand, complete powerlessness. On the other, complete power. On the one hand, complete despair. On the other hand, complete hope. Jesus stands before him and asks, do you want to get better? But the man doesn't really jump up with an emphatic yes, he can not jump up. But he doesn't say, yeah, yeah, yeah. He just mutters a, a discouraged reply. And then in verse 8, Jesus says, get up, take up your bed, and walk. Like we've said repeatedly the past few weeks, Jesus here is not a mere magician or well-wisher. Jesus' words are divine decrees. I, I don't know what that man thought at that moment. It may have been 38 years since he'd last taken a step. Perhaps he'd forgotten what it was like to walk. But he must have noticed a difference because John says in verse 9, the effect was Instantaneous. See those two words, at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Can you see the authority coming from the lips of Jesus? I mean, for anyone else to have been saying, hey, get up, that would have been just cruel because he can't. But for Jesus, his word is as good as done as as soon as it leaves his mouth. He has all the power to back it up. Here we see a live demonstration of the voice Jesus will later say will raise the dead. Look ahead to John 5.28. He'll tell the Jewish leaders: An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Here, Jesus is giving an object lesson to show his voice is the voice of God's. It gives life to the good. And judgment to the evil. It has authority to save and authority to condemn. Folks, that's why we can make peace even when we see the events that have occurred this past week. We might be powerless to prevent them, but not Jesus. The creator and the judge says the word and it comes to pass. Remember what Abby read for us earlier from Isaiah 35 about the coming age of God's salvation. The eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Well, here that's coming true. The Messiah has arrived and his voice makes lame men leap. Leap. Christian, consider Jesus. Consider him seeking out one of the most needy and marginalized men in all of Jerusalem. See him giving the word and all is restored. Christian, don't ever underestimate the power of Jesus. Don't make him small. Don't make him comfortable. He went places you would have never gone. He talked to people you would have avoided. He showed power that caused everyone to marvel. The word that brought the world into existence now brings life to this man's limbs. It's a complete, unmistakable show of the power of God. Verses one through nine, Jesus, the miracle worker. But then comes the uh uh-oh in the second part of verse nine. And we see Jesus, the Sabbath breaker. Now that day was the Sabbath So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The second half of verse 9 gives us a deeper understanding of the significance of this sign. John makes that note. Now, the day was a Sabbath. The Sabbath was the seventh day of the week, a day God had commanded to be set aside as a day of rest for his people so they could reflect and remember the deliverance from Egypt. And in Jesus' day, the Sabbath had become even more strict. The Jewish leaders had set up 39 more rules which specified exactly what kinds of work would be prohibited on the Sabbath. I mean, they were the religious professionals adding to God's law to make sure of their piety and their good standing before him. So you can imagine their alarm bells going off as they see this man on the Sabbath carrying his mat. And in verse 10, they launch a full investigation. Hey, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. This guy's in trouble. But before we look at his response, just notice the utter blindness of these religious leaders. Uh, Assuming they know what has just happened, how can they not be in awe at this man's healing, right? And there in front of them stands this guy who has been healed after 38 years of lameness. Here stands a man who had just moments before been lying miserably by the pool like he'd been doing for decades. And now he's standing His muscles are fully functional. He's even able to pick up his mat and carry it. But the Jews, um, bro, you're you're breaking the law. What are you doing? They're totally missing it, aren't they? They're passing over Jesus' act of power and getting up all in arms about this man's Sabbath breaking. And if that's not bad enough, it seems like this man who has been healed... His heart hasn't softened that much because he just passes on the buck to Jesus. He says, "Uh, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. It's not, he's saying, it's not my problem. Talk to the other guy. So the Jews say, well, where is he? And the guy's not sure, verse 13. We see that meanwhile, Jesus has withdrawn. We'll see next week in John 6, Lord willing, that Jesus will withdraw again because the people want to force him to be king. And that's probably what's going on here, too. He's not avoiding conflict with the Jews. He just created conflict with the Jews. He's avoiding the people, waiting until the crowd dies down, because he's not come to be crowned a king. He's come to be crowned with thorns and suffer death in their place. Even though the man doesn't know who Jesus is, Jesus finds him again, seeking out. The man in mercy in verse 14, he says, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. What's Jesus mean by that? There are differing opinions, but it seems best to understand that Jesus is recognizing that this man's sickness is in some way traceable to sin in his life. Perhaps that's why he chose that man out of all the invalids at the pool. We're not sure what it looked like, but Jesus tracks down this man and reminds him that although he's now able to walk, he must not ignore the deeper issue going on, that that he's a sinner who needs to be made right with God. That something worse that could happen that Jesus refers to is most likely the final day of judgment when he will come back as king and conquering judge. So Jesus is saying this man could live the next 10 to 15 years of his life as a healed man but still face spiritual death, the judgment of God. So he's been healed, but he must repent. He must turn to God. Now, as Christians, we must be careful how we talk about the link between sin and illness. So sure, in an ultimate sense, it's true that all of our physical suffering is a result of sin. The world is broken and our bodies are fallen. But for those of us who are Christians, we must be careful never to say that God is punishing us for sin when we become sick or when we suffer. Because that just casts aspersions on the cross of Christ. All of our punishment, those of us who are in Christ, is on that cross. None of it is left for us. So while we may undergo God's discipline, and that may look like sickness at times, Remember, we must trust him as our loving father who will only do what's best for us. Having said that, though, let's, let's take note of Jesus' warning and be sobered by it. I mean, particularly if you're here and you're not a Christian. Notice how Jesus is no longer worried about this man's physical health. That's not the most important thing, but the state of his soul. Jesus came not just to work miracles. He came to live a life of perfect obedience to God the life each of us was meant to live. See, each of us, everyone here in this room has been created to give glory to God with our lives. But each of us, you, especially me, have sought to bring glory to ourselves instead of our creator. You've sinned against the king of the universe. That sin is terrible treason and the punishment must fit the crime. Our punishment is spiritual death. But Jesus came not only to live the life we should have lived, but to die the death we should have died. He came to be our substitute, to take all of our sins on himself, all of our judgment in our place. That judgment he warned the healed man might come, would come on himself. Jesus came to deliver any who would trust in him. So friend, if you're here, we're so grateful that you've chosen to come to church on a beautiful Sunday morning. But if you've never trusted in Christ and his work in dying and rising again to save, repent today. Turn to Jesus and be saved. He's the only way to escape God's judgment and to be made right with our creator forever. Come talk to me afterwards. If you have questions about that, talk to Brad or talk to someone next to you. We'd love to share with you more about how we're not better than you. We're gathered here because we know we're worse, but we've found a better savior. Look there in verse 15. Because Jesus has still another message for the Jewish leaders. So the man finds that he's been healed by Jesus. And and what does he do, teenagers? He tattletales, doesn't he? he? He goes, I do it too. Don't mean to point on you. He goes and he tells the Jews that this is Jesus. This leads to even more persecution for Jesus. But then in verse 17, Jesus drops a bombshell. So as the leaders rail against him for Sabbath breaking, he responds in kind of a cryptic way, but they get what he's saying. Verse 17, my father is working until now and I am working. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, you're mad at me for working on the Sabbath. But do you think God works on the Sabbath? Do you think the universe is still upheld on the Sabbath? you think you're still sustained and breathing in and breathing out on the Sabbath? Do you think the Lord of the universe is at work on the Sabbath? Of course he is. And I am too. The Jews know exactly what he's saying. He's making himself out to be God. And in verse 18, their anger at this reaches a deafening pitch. Now they don't just want to silence Jesus. They want to squash Jesus. He's committed blasphemy. If you skip ahead to John 19 at his trial, the Jews will again cry out to Pilate. We have a law and according to that law, Jesus ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. Jesus here is just saying words that will lead to his death. He's showing by this sign that he is God. That just as God has authority over the Sabbath because he instituted the Sabbath, so Jesus also has authority over the Sabbath because he has instituted the Sabbath. That just as God works to deliver his people from sickness and spiritual death, so Jesus works to deliver his people from sickness and spiritual death. See, this sign at the beginning of John 5 will validate everything that Jesus will say for the rest of the chapter. And if you go back this afternoon and read the rest of the chapter, it's amazing. What he's saying is revolutionary. He's saying his word is not the word of a mere man. His word is the word of God, the judge and savior of the world. His word brings life and judgment. Jesus here has purposefully worked a sign on the Sabbath in order to show that he's the one with authority come from God. So that's this sign. It's the fourth sign we've gone over. Church, what should we make of this sign. Well, the main point for us to see is that Jesus is clear about his identity as the Son of God. That's exactly why he's performing this sign. But he's also performing the sign on the Sabbath, and he purposefully gets into conflict with the Jewish leaders. I wonder, Christian, do you see yourself in this passage? Is there a character in this story that resembles you? Resembles me? Church, look at the Jewish religious leaders. Consider how pious and upright they appear. How good they look on the outside. Look how zealous they are to keep the rules that they have constructed to earn God's favor. And then just see how completely they miss the identity of Christ. Are so offended by him that they seek to put him to death for threatening their religious system. Church, how can we so easily be like the Jewish leaders? I mean, so often, and I put myself at the front, I come into this pulpit having felt this burden before I give it to you, which is the only way I should do it. How easily. Can we try to earn favor with God by keeping man-made rules instead of loving our Savior? Hear what I'm saying. We, We must have rules. The law of God is also talked about as the law of Christ. Jesus comes to this man, he's healed, and he commands him, what, to just love God? No, he says sin no more. Holiness is a big deal. But, but see the danger here in the Jewish leaders of having all your religious ducks in a row and yet miss the beauty and power of knowing Jesus himself as the son of God. I mean, think on it. As you look at your life, are there ways you have invented a system of performance and behavior in your life in order to, you'd never say this, but in order to kind of twist God's arm and make him happy with you? This one's from me but hopefully it's for you too. Are are there ways you're enslaved by the expectations of others, convinced that God will love you if you work as hard as you can to please them? Are you content with the trappings of Christianity, outward performance without the power of Christ? Obviously, as Christians, we're all gonna say, no, 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 no. But consider how small we can make our Savior, brothers and sisters, by by fitting him into our systems, squishing him into our agendas, making him fit our plans, just like these blind Jewish leaders. Christian, how might you be shrinking the power of the Son of God in your life this morning? Tim Keller writes, religious people find God useful. Christians find God beautiful, beautiful savior, wonderful counselor. Church, look again at Jesus in this text. Just as he pursued the weak, belligerent man by the pool, so he has pursued you, brother, sister. He's pursued you and me in our sin. If you're here and you're not a Christian, he's still pursuing you. Would you respond? Not only has he come with words of life and judgment, but he, the judge, had come to be the judged, to give himself up to the power of God, to be crucified so that we might have new life. The good news of Jesus Christ is so much better than we understand, friends. Jesus is so much bigger than we assume. He's come to raise us up so that we might walk in newness of life, just like that man at the pool in Bethesda. But Christian, I don't want to leave us with a guilt trip. Don't take that as a guilt trip. Honestly, seek your heart because knowing Jesus in this way brings so much joy. Empty religion will never give you that joy. Empty obedience will never give you that joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord and ask to know him as your redeemer and friend. But think about it, Christian. Each of us has a testimony about the power of Christ in this way, don't we? No matter how many times our hard hearts resist it, Christ is always drawing us to himself and he has once and for all brought us from death to life. We thought we knew the way. We thought we knew how to please God. We thought we knew how to straighten up and fly right. But then the power of Christ came. Then the power of Christ opened our eyes, redeemed our hearts, gave us new hearts that love the Savior and seek to worship him. So I can't think of a better way to to rejoice in our salvation than singing our testimonies together, friends. That's what we're gonna do now, that we will proclaim we were lost but now all we have and all we need is Christ. Let's pray. Lord, use us in any way you choose. You are our king. We confess we think so often, we know the way to earn your favor, but you have sent your son to redeem us and guarantee eternal favor. So, Lord, as your church, humble us, we pray. Use us as you see fit. We are yours. Lord, forgive us for so often making you smaller, fitting you into our lives, fitting you into the religious section of our lives. Lord, may we worship you as the Son of God, the mighty, powerful voice that brings life to our hearts through your word. May our boast ever only be in you, not in us. In Jesus' name, amen.